we've got to stop this before it gets out of hand, before it gets to a point where Canadians are going to be frustrated with us because we're all thinking we're always looking for handouts and saying to us the free ride's over. Well, it's not a free ride. It's it's a terrible, terrible, terrible ride. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Gray Matter. Well, many Canadians are under the misunderstanding, the misapprehension that our First Nations peoples are somehow against the development of natural resource projects in this country. And in fact, the truth is that this is a a false impression that's been created by mass media uh, with the participation of government um, in order to to create this this impression that that the environment is is being protected by uh, First Nations people who are against oil and gas development. This is not true, and as we're going to discover today uh, from our guest, uh, there are many First Nations peoples in this country who are, and especially in uh, Western Canada, who are very, very interested in developing oil and gas projects. Here's a few statistics for your consideration. Uh, 19 First Nations communities were projected to be uh, positively impacted by the failed Keystone XL pipeline project. Nearly half of the First Nations communities uh, in Alberta are expected to benefit from oil and gas resource development. And the unemployment rate uh, for First Nations peoples in Alberta uh, is 13.9% compared to 8.1% for the rest of the province. So our guest today is uh, is Dale Swampy. Uh, he's headed up an organization called the National Coalition of Chiefs, who are dedicated to development of uh, oil and gas projects in our province. And in fact, Dale uh, has been uh, engaged in this uh, for the past uh, 20 years. Welcome to the program, Dale. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So Dale is... Uh, He's a member of the Samson Cree Nation in Masquerchies, Alberta. He's a graduate of the University of Alberta with a bachelor's degree in uh, in economics. Um, as I as I mentioned off the off the top, he's been very involved in the oil and gas industry. And after working over twenty years with his band, um, he left his position as CEO with Samson Cree Nation to start his own business as an Indigenous relations consultant, working on a variety of projects. Uh, including uh, founding uh, an organization that he uh, heads up called the National Coalition of Chiefs. And essentially what he's done, uh, or he's been doing during all that time, is uh, is doing his very best to get these projects built in order to bring jobs and wealth creation to First Nations communities. But of course, um, he's been sort of swimming against the tide that we talked about uh, and so we're going to we're going to examine that with him uh, today and get some of his thoughts about why that is happening and what some solutions are. So uh, turning to our quotations, as we always do, the first one is from Sitting Bull. Warriors are not what you think of as warriors. The warrior is not someone who fights because no one has the right to take another life. The warrior for us is one who sacrifices himself for the good of others. 
His task is to take care of the elderly, the defenseless, those who cannot provide for themselves, and above all, the children, the future of humanity. Uh, I have a soft spot for Sitting Bull because my late grandmother told me that uh, our ancestors actually fought on <laughs> against and were part of the group that defeated General Custer there. Uh, so we have no proof, but that's part of legend. Uh, secondly, uh, from another uh, Lakota Dakota uh, chief, uh, th this is Chief Avril Looking Horse from 1954. He said, each of us is put here in this time, in this place, to personally decide the future of humankind. Did you think the creator would create unnecessary people in a time of such terrible danger? How relevant is that quotation today with what's going on with the globalists? Know that you yourself are essential to this world. Okay, Dale Swampy, thanks for being with us. Uh, Dale, where I'd like to start off, uh, perhaps if you wouldn't mind, is maybe telling the, the audience a little bit about the National Coalition of Chiefs and, and the work that you're, that you're doing. Yes, we, we started from the, um, from the uh, cancellation of Northern Gateway. We had uh, what we called the Aboriginal Equity Partners, which was a coalition model uh, <clears throat> of 31 communities out of the 40 communities that uh, made up, um, that were in the vicinity of the Northern Gateway Pipeline Project. And it was a successful relationship because the 31 First Nation communities were actually growing started with 26 and we anticipated by the time the project was built that we'd have all 40 aligned and uh, supporting the project as well as owning the project, <clears throat> having, you know, 33, 33% ownership in the end. So when the project was canceled, we, um, instead of suing the federal government for lost benefits, we moved towards establishing the Nord uh, National Coalition of Chiefs to spread across the nation to governments, to industry into First Nations, uh, the coalition model, the regional coalition model is the model to use in order to get project certainty, to get projects built, to maximize benefits for First Nation people, and to protect the environment because First Nation people being involved and being the stewards of the land and always being in that location, uh, <clears throat> you know, from time in memoriam. So, when we started the program, we really, really thought we weren't going to get much traction because we thought most of, just like everybody else did on the media and the media, you know, capitalized on the environmentalists and so forth. So we thought there would be a lot of opposition from chiefs across this country to join and to support this model, but we haven't found one yet. We believe the majority of the chiefs across this country are concerned more about employment and poverty than they are you know, about uh, environment, because they believe, and they've been doing it for years and years and years, um, <clears throat> hundreds of years, protecting the environment, because they know how important that is. So we've been pushing the model, and in, in 2018, we added to our mandate to defeat on-reserve poverty, as we feel poverty is the cause for all of the social ills that we experience across this country, whether, whether it's uh, alcohol and drug abuse, teenage uh, suicide, domestic abuse, uh, <clears throat> murder and missing women, racism for that matter. We believe if we if we focus on defeating on-reserve poverty through employment and ownership of major projects, major natural resource projects, that we'll, we'll have a chance in order to bring our communities around so that we can participate in the prosperity of this country. So you, you talk about raising people out of poverty. 
And, uh, you know, that that is so key because um, one of the clear markers, and you know this, I don't think many people realize this, but one of the clear markers which determines the, at least the the ability or the option or the availability of, of being risen out of poverty is energy. And, and in Alberta and in Canada, we're so fortunate uh, to be blessed with these natural resources. And really, um, when you go to many First Nations communities, sadly, um, you can see that that lack of access to energy, uh, lack of access to things like just just water, uh, lack to, of, of access to things like proper roads, schools, things like that. There's clearly been a lot of broken promises. But what you, what the National Coalition of Chiefs that seems to be doing that's let's say somewhat unique uh, as far as I can see is that you're not you're not going to the government and saying uh, we want you know give us money we want handouts. What you're talking about is meaningful partnerships. Uh, in order to to help First Nation communities develop their own resources, provide that energy so that there can be human flourishing uh, in for all First Nations peoples. Uh, so that that's somewhat of a unique approach, isn't it? Well, I I don't think it is. I think it's unique in 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 a sense that we don't see a lot of it across this country happening, and I think it's it's unique in the fact that. The uh, industry itself, the natural resource industry, including the oil and gas industry, hasn't really made a concerted effort to join us in, in partnerships uh, until the last 15 or 20 years when ESG guidelines became important to both the federal government and industry in order to get projects mm-hmm. built. So I, I think when when you say, you know, partnerships are, you know, didn't exist in the past, I think it was it was both the industry and the government, um, you know, lack of commitment towards this, and it's it's also our um, lack of uh, seeing the opportunity mm-hmm. that's been that's that's out there, and we, you know, you see that in Alberta with all of the fourteen thousand self-identified Indigenous workers in this country, in the oil and gas industry, and um, they're concerned about what's going to happen with this new legislation regarding, you know, the. Um, the loan guarantee program and the fact that uh, we've heard that, you know, Jabo is trying to get uh, oil and gas and natural resources off of the mm-hmm. table in, in terms of applications for First Nations. Mm-hmm. And we think that's very prescriptive, telling First Nations what they can and cannot invest in. And I think that's uh, something that's we we are battling against. Uh, there's a lot of groups, pro-industry groups across this country that are, you know, related to Indigenous peoples and so forth that are arguing against this. We just wrote an article in the uh, National Post voicing our issues and concerns regarding this as well. Mm. Uh, one other thing that I think has done a disservice uh, to people like you who are trying to uh, get th- things like pipelines built are the activities of these NGOs, these non-governmental organizations. And I know for you, it's been somewhat frustrating. You've been involved Going back to all the way to, I think, to 2006, I think you've been involved in every major pipeline project that's been proposed in Canada. And even though you've worked very hard, invested a lot of time and energy, uh, you've had a very difficult time seeing any of these sort of bear fruit. Uh, you want to talk about that a little bit, why that's happening, why it's so hard to get these projects built in Canada? Well, it started in 2008 when when the um, environmental non-government agencies started to focus more on oil and gas and uh, the oil sands in Alberta. And they seen an opportunity to uh, capitalize on an impoverished nation. And 
more so impoverished people, young people, young people who were, you know, feeling disenfranchised by the by the Canadian society and didn't think they had a future in the society. They were angry and wanted to blame somebody that, you know, this shouldn't be happening and why is it happening to me? And then these NGOs come along and say, you've got this treaty right, you've got this inherent right to be able to, uh, you know, uh, act on, act against projects like uh, pipelines and all sounds and so forth. And um, you can you can do this by risking your, you know, criminal records and so forth. So it was it's 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 terrible terrible thing that happens. You know, a lot of young people get involved in this cultish type disinformation that happens with ENGOs. Their types of in- disinformation is um, is is incredible. It speaks in absolutes. It doesn't make any sense, but it's but it's something the young people wanted to hear about. They wanted something to fight. For and they felt that the environment, protecting the environment, was something that they could do, and not realizing that they were going against all the uh, processes and all the opportunities that were in front of them to be able to, you know, get the opportunities to to, you know, uh, get a decent job and participate in the prosperity of this country, not realizing that Canadians are, you know, there are they are good people and they want us to be able to get out of poverty and the only way we can do that is to partner with the biggest industry in in Canada right now and that's natural resource industry. One of the things that uh the NCC is involved in uh is is development of these uh of these natural resource summits. I believe you have them uh, uh basically twice a year. Uh, big events uh the most recent ones have been held in Calgary. And uh, the the premier was at the last one. I believe Pierre Polivier was actually attended the last one as well. So um, obviously there's there seems to be a lot of interest politically in what you were doing. Have you noticed any improvement or, or any sort of shift in the approach of government since Danielle Smith became an, uh, our our new premier, or has it been status quo? Well, I I think if you asked a question a year or two ago, I I would say that uh, they were very very standoffish and they they refused to meet with us they refused to talk to us uh now the liberal government is you know a minority government had to join with the ndp in order to get a full government their popularity is is down now we finally got an answer from one of our letters one of our dozens of letters that we sent to the prime minister we actually got an email response to one of the emails we sent to as well this is something that's out of the ordinary in the past, um, we had 31 chiefs who wrote to the to the prime minister to meet with them on Northern Gateway, for, so that we could t- so that they could tell them that they were in support of this project and they were satisfied with the safety and integrity programs that that uh, Northern Gateway was offering in order to protect the lands and waters. And we never received a smart response from from the prime minister. We tried and tried. We went to Ottawa almost five times during that time before the project was cancelled to express our opinions we couldn't meet with the prime prime minister we couldn't even meet with the uh, natural resource minister we went to um uh, hearings for c48 tanker bands 669 the canadian energy regulatory regime that type of uh, involvement has created kind of an animosity i think towards uh, towards us by the current government but now since they, you know, are floundering, they 
they're not popular at all. They've ruined a lot of opportunities for us in this country since the eight years they've been in office. Hundreds of thousands of people in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and BC have lost their jobs. You know, billions of dollars worth of projects have been delayed or put on the shelf because of this uh, uh, government. Uh, the economy is, you know, turning backwards on us. We need to capitalize on what's going on right now. The oil, the the price of oil and gas has gone up. Uh, we should be in a oil and gas boom right now in Alberta and Saskatchewan and BC and Manitoba, but we're not because we're held back by these uh, uh, ENGOs and a leader who was part of it all. Uh, our environmental minister Jabot is is right front and center, mm -hmm. doing something that he's always done, and that is is trying to pass things without any compromise at all, without any sustainable action. That means no sustainable. Uh, process for this energy transition, uh, you know, comes to mind when he when he starts to promote what he's trying to do, and what that creates is a is a is a issue with Canadians because Jabot and Trudeau are are from a different sector of our, of our society, and everybody forgets that we are in a cold cold environment. We're one of the few uh, uh, centers of population that is that is so far up north that we experience 30, 40 degrees below zero all the time. And Canadians have been have become good people because they know the, the struggles each one of us has in being able to handle the um, low temperatures and so forth and, and the remoteness and so forth. So Canadians have been, uh, in my mind, are the best people in the world. And I they agree. try to help each other. You know, now we're getting in a situation where we think uh, – we can go ahead and stop the heating oils, stop the uh, um, the uh, fossil fuel use of fossil fuels by, you know, imposing an incredible carbon tax. You know, sixty percent of our people, you know, are unemployed on welfare. Where where are they going to get the money to be able to employ to heat their own homes? Right. We have people's people on reserves with two or three families living in one house, not because there's a lack of housing, because but because there's a lack of ability to pay the kind of uh, utilities you need to pay when you're living in a remote yeah. community, and that's something that the Canadian people just are not really, uh, you know. Um, that's an untold story. They don't story. really understand. They don't yeah. really appreciate mm -hmm. because there's there's no information out there being being uh, given to them about what our situation is. And if they knew the kind of situation we were in, they'd roll up their sleeves and help us. Yeah. All you got to do is look at my sister having a soup kitchen on a reserve. She has 20 volunteers that come out from off the reserve. If if those volunteers and what they know about uh, First Nation communities and what they know about the strife that we are going through right now. If every Canadian knew and understood like they did, we wouldn't have the poverty we have today. Right. That's uh, that's truth and reconciliation right there, isn't it? Um, that's right. I, I saw Mr. Chabot tweet today, actually. He's saying that the destruction of the oil and gas industry in Canada is necessary for the greater good. And he also thinks it's very important to increase access to made uh, medical assistance in dying. Um, I think we can connect those dots. At least that's, that's uh, in his mind, <laughs> he sees the, 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 the opposite of human flourishing. It seems to be what he wants for our country. You mentioned that op-ed that you published in the National Post. Uh, what specifically were, was the message that you sent to Mr. Jabot uh, through that piece? Well, it, we focus more on the, the idea of um, 
getting the um, federal loan guarantee program to include, make sure that it includes the natural resource industry, the oil and gas industry, because we think that's important. The, the biggest projects are gonna be coming up in the next 10 years are gonna be related to that. We also uh, wanna support Pathways Alliance and carbon, carbon sequestration. We think that's gonna have a big impact on our ability to make net zero by uh, 2050. So it's those type of things that we wanna be involved in. We think the carbon sequestration program and the other projects associated with Pathways Alliance, it's gonna be the biggest construction project in uh, the history of Canada. It's gonna be like building another, uh, you know, uh, uh, another industry. And our First Nations, the 25 communities that are involved and located within the region of operations of those, of those projects want to be a part of it. And right. the Pathways Alliance group, which is comprised of the six big oil sands producers, which produce something like 95 or 96 percent of all of the oil sands production in uh, in Alberta, are behind this and mm -hmm. uh, and want to work to help with climate change. And we know that uh, the transition is has to include fossil fuels until such point in time that we're able to develop a sustainable green energy system and, and and that's not going to happen in the next 10 or 20 years so we have to rely on the oil sands we have to rely on the oil and gas industry we have to re rely on a natural gas industry we have to rely on lng and so forth and first nations are seeing the opportunity and seeing the cooperation of indus both industry and the provinces so we want to capitalize on this and get our people our young people you know to say hey look we we care about you and we want you to be employed, and here's our here are the opportunities that we are working towards to get you employed and to participate as Canadian citizens, hardworking Canadian citizens. And it's not out of the question. It happened with uh, Fort Mackay. They're 100 percent employed, what a success and they're only 100 percent employed because the government, the province, the um, the uh, oil sands developers mm -hmm. gave them extra consideration and worked yeah. with them. It took it took a while. It took 50 years, but uh, that's you know, it, it's it's not it's not something that uh, uh, you you know we should uh, we should give up on. Yeah. Don't don't give up on our people because we think we can we can get them out of poverty. And that's 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 not just the young people. I'm talking about the 20, 30, 40 year old individuals that are wallowing in poverty on our reserves that are collecting social social welfare payments every month. They don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. We can't give up on those people because even if we invest all of our money in education and what did Trudeau do? He, he funded 700 or $800 million for education on reserves, but it's not going to help us if our parents are not getting up to get our children to school. Right. And that's what we need. We got to get rid of this vicious cycle, this social welfare cycle that's going on right now. Mm -hmm. And in the article, I, I pointed out that the gov federal government's got to stop managing poverty and start managing things like uh, extra consideration on employment strategies, extra consideration on ownership of projects. Because once we have ownership, it's not, uh, oh, we'll do our best to hire your First Nation people. All of a sudden, we're on the board, right? Right. All of a sudden, we're on a board, we're protecting the environment, and we're making sure that we get employment opportunities, and that's important. Right. So you're not talking about affirmative action, you're talking about action. Uh, you're talking right. about economic action and uh, and and sort of building the uh, you know the confidence and and self-esteem of First Nations peoples and communities. Um, 
I want to talk a little bit about the whole sovereignty thing. Now, as you know, uh, First Nations com communities have been talking about sovereignty and self-governance for a really long time in this country. Uh, but most recently, this whole sovereignty issue has come to light in terms of the province and the federal government. And uh, this province, Alberta and Saskatchewan, have both passed statutes, essentially sovereignty-type legislation. Um, is, that, is that a concern to, to you and, and, and to the NCC in terms of, you know, your ongoing relationships with the federal government? Uh, or, or is that something that you see as, uh, as, as more a situation where, um, you know, Alberta and Saskatchewan are operating within their lanes and it really doesn't impact uh, any, of, any of the projects and things that you're working on? Well, we support what Alberta and Saskatchewan are doing to, you know, defend their province's economy, defend their ability to build, make decisions about natural resources that lie within their, within their provinces. And we think that it's, it's, it mirrors exactly what First Nations are trying to do. And First Nations are trying to be able to get their own sovereignty so that they can manage their communities the way they want. We, we promote the coalition model to, to advance on infrastructure deals such as pure fresh water, wastewater, solid waste systems, roads and bridges, power utilities, housing, and so forth. The coalition model, we think, is the model to use to, to get regional communities together to be able to manage this. Self-government is, uh, is a process that uh, we feel chief and councils want to be able to get moving so that uh, they can understand and do, you know, um, and make strategies for their, to, to, to better uh, provide services to their community members in a way that fits to where where they're located, where the resources are, where industry is, where where the economy is, and so forth. And it's because we don't believe one size fits all. Mm -hmm. And the federal government's always been uh, promoting programs and and um, things that they think that can they can help us to get out of poverty, but not realizing that. You know, one size doesn't fit all. You you've got to be able to go out and 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 visit with the communities and ask the chief and councils, ask the band managers what's important for their community. And it's not the same across the board for every community. Just like it isn't the same for province to province. So to say that a national energy program should be equal across the uh, all of the ten provinces and three territories is 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 ridiculous. It it doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, and um, to be able to have provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan obey the, that kind of um, ridiculous program is, you know, just ridiculous. And I think if 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 the, you know, we've always pointed out, and I thought Kenny at one time was going to be able to, you know, make a strong effort to 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 protect our natural resources in this province, but as soon as you know he got into power. He changed the name of the war room to the Canadian Energy Center. I knew right away we weren't going to get the kind of effort from him that we needed to protect our our um, natural resources. Now we have someone in there who who knows all the issues, who's worked with all the issues, and that we know and trust very well. And uh, she's working hard to protect our 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 communities. And you know, Saskatchewan's doing the same thing. You know, Manitoba getting their first Indigenous uh, person as a as a, mm -hmm. a premier is something that we're looking forward to. He's going to see that a lot of the First Nations want opportunities, want economic opportunities, and those are going to come from the natural resources. 
So we we applaud what they're doing and we support them in any way we can. And uh, we we hope that uh, they're going to be able to get in a situation mm -hmm. where we're going to move forward with natural resource mm -hmm. development, including oil and gas. You mentioned uh, the, the new premier of Manitoba, Wab Canoe. I agree with you. That's a very promising situation. Are you concerned at all? I, I noticed he came out uh, in support of, uh, of abolition of the, of the carbon tax. Uh, but are you concerned at all that being part of the NDP, that, that perhaps uh, you know, his, 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 uh, his party might not be receptive to oil and gas development? Yeah, this, this whole party alignment is something that I've always um, opposed ever since, you know, I became a um, advocate for uh, democracy and so forth as a young person growing up. You know, the democ democratic model has always preached that um, we go out and elect officials to make decisions on our behalf. We go out and elect officials to become more informed about the issues. Uh, that's that's are concerning to, you know, how we live and how we operate within this society. And um, the only reason we do that is because we don't have the time to get on top of all the issues. Right. We hire, we elect people to do that. And we want those people to look at both sides of the issue and make an informed decision. We don't, we didn't elect people to make, to, to uh, obey a leader uh, a prime minister or a, you know, a, uh, a party. And if they don't obey, they're going to get kicked out of the party. It just, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, in the sixties and seventies, when I was growing up, there wasn't such a division between party lines. And uh, now you're seeing a lot of liberals who, you know, see a lot of good things that conservatives are doing. You see a lot of conservatives seeing a lot, a lot of good things that liberals are good. I mean, the liberal the liberal and the conservative models aren't all perfect. Right. They need a little bit of both. Right. And right. and to say that, um, you know, I hope that Wab is able to get into a situation where he's making decisions that are based on his own opinions and his, his opinions as a First Nation person, too, as well, and as a protector of our environment, as a, uh, you know, a, a promoter of getting us out of poverty, as a promoter of economic development on First Nations. And when you when you see that kind of work, you're going to see a cross-section of both what the NDP wants, the Conservatives want, and the Liberals want. And I hope he makes independent choices that are good for, you know, both Manitoba, the Indigenous people, and Canada. Yeah, and Canada. yeah me too. Um, another sort of uh, enemy, if you will, of oil and gas development in this country has been the courts. But we had a couple of recent decisions that uh, show a little bit of promise. Uh, the C69 uh, no more pipelines bill uh, was uh, was set aside, or that was decided in favor of the provinces. Um, and then we had this recent decision on plastics, the unconstitutionality of uh, Mr. Jabot's uh, blanket plastic ban, which always seemed ludicrous to any sensible person. Um, do you see the prospect? Are you optimistic that uh, that is going to open up the 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 you know the opportunity of the corridor to have some of these major projects? That you've tried to get done over the past couple of decades, that they'll they'll finally get going, or or are you concerned that perhaps uh, uh, you know these will still be be stalled by future litigation? Well, we always want the constitution to be a common sense legislation, and I think what's happened in the last two decisions and more decisions to come 
uh, is that uh, Supreme Court has supported the Constitution and has made decisions that relate to common sense factors. And that means that, um, you know, doing the kind of um, uh, programs or, or promoting the kind of programs and processes that are that are proposed by ENGOs, which are, you know, non-sustainable, non-compromising, that speak in absolutes, doesn't work with society. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't say, um, you know, everybody across the country has got to do this because we believe it's a, it's for for the, for the good, no matter who you are, or where you live in, or what what type of uh, lifestyle you have. It doesn't make sense for anybody. And and I think the you know the Americans got it right. This this the the states have a a lot of authority over everything that they do for their people. Are not dominated by the federal government in terms of um, what goes on in in their neck of the woods, so to speak. And I think <clears throat> the country's got to realize that we got to get away from these uh, idealistic uh, uh, notions that uh, things can happen mm. in an instance. And people have got to stop electing politicians who want to get on to the, who want to live in immortality by uh, passing these ideological processes that will never work in real life and real Mm -hmm. society. And we've got to start looking at the pragmatic view and the, you know, the sustainability view of what, what Canadians can endure. And until we get that, we're not going to be able to uh, get a, get a society that's, or an economy that's going to be be able to come out from what's been created in the last eight years. Dale, um, the NCC uh, and chiefly yourself uh, as its as its leader have been uh, very outspoken in a number of articles that you've published about um, opposing these uh, these emission caps that want to be that the federal government wants to impose. Uh, but the other side of that, and I'm interested to get your take on this because it's an area that I don't fully understand. It's the whole concept of carbon capture uh, and methane capture. This seems to be, uh, pardon the pun, sort of an untapped uh, uh, resource. And uh, there's some very interesting dialogue going on about this. Is this something that the National Coalition of Chiefs is involved in developing carbon capture type programs? Because it seems to me that uh, th- this could be a tremendous opportunity for First Nations to get involved and to build the kind of wealth that you're talking about in their communities. Yeah, exactly. We want to we want to lead the environmental protection regime in Canada. And the only reason we want to do this is because because we we have to communicate to Canadians and federal provincial governments the reality that we are we we aren't going to we're we're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know the giant mine in Northwest Territories, the Canadian taxpayer now has to pay four point two billion dollars in reclamations uh, in order to protect the environment, protect the lives of the people protect our fresh water from from the arsenic that's been created from this from this mine operating for 40 years without any real environmental protection plan or any funds that was created by the proponents to ensure that there was going to be at the end of the road a plan to clean up the environment and had they been in partnership with the first nations chances are that project probably wouldn't even be built mm-hmm. uh, with the amount of um, 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 damage that this this whole process has created. I mean, this this thing's going to take twenty years to implement, and they're going to freeze the arsenic underground. And there's nothing else you can do but monitor it for the next hundred years, or 
next few hundred years until there's a technological process that allows us to get rid of that that um, that deadly uh, product. So you take that into context and you talk about the processes that are created right now in order to help fight climate change, global warming, and so forth. And one of the categories that comes into it is created by what we call the sustainable energy model, which has to include oil and gas and fossil fuels. And if it has to do, if it has to include fossil fuels, which we believe, then we've got to develop processes to allow us to take, to capture that carbon released from uh, those processes and put them in the ground and from, you know, literally from where they came, because there's a lot of, a lot of resources in this country, especially in Northern Alberta, to be able to do this. And the uh, technology is there and who better to handle the technology than the most technolo technologically advanced industry in the world, and that's the Alberta oil and gas industry. And who better to manage it than the stewards of the land? That's the First Nations who are going to be here, you know, forever. And we want to be sure that 50 years from now, 60 years from now, that there's that there's that the whole environment is still clean, and that there's no, you know great mistake or great problem created like we have in the giant mine. There's two more mines in Yukon that are going to go under the same process. I mean, mm -hmm. why do we do this? Why do we proceed with, with things without, you know, realizing that there's no final solution in the end, You're praying and hoping there's a technology created in the end that'll help us to get rid of these. It's like the uh, nuclear situation, right? right? Why do we create a nuclear situation until we, until we, found a technology to get rid of the the uh, plutonium that's created from it so and first nations are pragmatic about this they don't uh you know sweep it under the rug like um, a lot of the industry proponents do we've been struggling with proponents for decades trying to trying to get them to to make sure the environmental environment is protected and we've earned our right to be stewards of the land and the NGOs have got to stop from stop focusing on killing the economy and start focusing on protecting the economy. Mm -hmm. And they called us stewards of the land. That's that's what they've been promoting uh, for us for the last uh, two decades. Mm -hmm. So we want to call them out on it and say say to them, well, if we are stewards of the land, you got to help us to protect the environment, and we have to be a owners of these projects we have to be you know um, controlling the environmental protection strategies and programs like ccus and carbon capture sequestration programs and uh, we think we can do it because we want to do it and we want to do it uh, for the decades it takes for us to be able to to um, get that program going and to be able to meet the net zero mm -hmm. uh, goals for 2050. You, you mentioned uh, First Nations historically being stewards of, of the land. Um, but it seems to me, and I mentioned this off the top of the show, that First Nations uh, people have been unfairly branded as being anti-resource uh, development. Uh, and the NGOs have, have played a huge part in this. Um, why do you think that that has occurred? And is that a situation where, for example, uh, the NGOs have sort of weaponized First Nations people in order to uh, be be a roadblock that would prevent, uh, for example, pipeline projects and so on. 
why why are why are First Nations being sort of portrayed publicly as being against oil and gas? Because clearly, from the statistics that I found on your website that I I read off the top of the show, I mean about half about half of the First Nations communities in Alberta will will benefit from oil and gas projects. Uh, so clearly they're they're for this. Uh, but why is this perception out there in the public? Uh, that that the opposite is true is that and is that concerning to you? Oh, definitely is. I mean, you know, it's always the loudest voice seems to get all of the um, all the media coverage. Media has turned the. But it is false. It is false, isn't it? I mean, you're steeped in this. That that's really not what First Nations communities, by and large, in your experience, want. They want to develop the, this energy and and create wealth, right? Yeah, I've I've never gone, never talked to a First Nation leader who's who said after we've told them that we think it's a good idea to proceed with this project X because it's going to provide you with employment and training and uh, prosperity, and uh, I've never seen them turn around and say, well, we believe it's going to be toxic to the environment and that the people that are doing this are not going to protect us and the land and the water. We know that. Um, uh, all I got to do is look at the LNG projects coming up in northwestern and uh, south, southwestern BC. The First Nations out there have been working for decades with oil and gas. We were there starting the Northern Gateway project as early as 2000. <clears throat> and um, although they were greenfield and they didn't have experience with uh, bitumen or oil, they had a lot of experience with gas. The LNG, you know, um, assets out there. The natural gas assets are, are tremendous, and especially in northeastern BC. And we've seen the, them uh, working with uh, proponents. And these are Canadians. These are fellow Canadians. Canadians aren't aren't going to go out there and ruin their country on purpose. And uh, they they work in, in the best manner they can. They do. They spend as much resources on integrity issues, integrity programs, in order to protect the environment. And they do it the best in the world. And it's the First Nations in that area that understand and appreciate that, and that's why they support them because they know they're not going to they're not going to ignore them. They're not going to they're, they're there in the community. They're working with them, and uh, we believe that the majority of First Nations across this country have the same kind of attitude. The only reason that we get the kind of opposition that we get is because industry in the past has ignored First Nations. Um, we believe the the coalition model works well because it includes all of the First Nations, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're big or small, whether they're close or far from the proximity of the project, are included and have an equal voice in what goes on within that uh, within that area of operations. And I think that's important. And once you once you get that and get that understanding between the two. But between the three, I guess, uh, entities, the governments, industry, and First Nations, then you, you can get a cooperative agreement, and then you can get some level of certainty to the First Nation leaders that this project's going to protect the environment. If you don't get that, then the chances are that First Nation leader has no understanding of what that project's all about, so we'll automatically oppose it. It's, a, it's just a human trait. Right. Something, if you don't understand, you tend to push it away. And there's not a whole lot of chiefs uh, going up front and center and manning picket lines and so forth because, you know, they know that's not going to help them 
get their people out of poverty. It's not going to help them get them jobs. Every day, every chief that I ever met, every day, he's got people across his desk, he or she, as people across their desk asking, where can I get a job, chief? Where can I get help my family get more, you know, the food mm-hmm. they need, you know, the clothing they need, you know, the heat and utilities in their household. You know, how can you get them to house us? You know, and that's not going to come from manning picket lines on pipeline protests. You right. know, they got to be out there and taking advantage of industry and projects that are operating within their region. Mm-hmm. And part of that role, uh, sort of connecting these three these these three parts, if you will, uh, that is industry, First Nations communities, and government, are the summits that you put on. Uh, and you've got one coming up, I believe, is it is in February. Yes, is that? Yeah, do you want to talk about that? Energy. Yeah, you want to talk about that a little bit and uh, how that works? Because I know it. You bring a lot of industry leaders together, and there is opportunity for people who are watching this or taking this in to get involved in this and register and have a booth there or to sponsor. You want to talk about about your your energy summits and sort of how they fit into with the whole ethos of of the work that you're doing with NCC? Yeah, definitely. We we started with our natural our, our energy natural. Resource Summit in June in cooperation with the Global Energy Show. Um, and then uh, about two years ago, the chiefs got together and they said, well, we, we have to do something with the renewable projects because we want to be part of the renewable projects coming up. And they knew that there was a lot of projects being developed across the country. So we we went out and did research with the unions about where are the renewable projects in this country? We thought we'd have a conference either in Vancouver or in uh, Toronto, because we thought that, you know, those are areas where the environmentalists are focused on. And what we found was incredible. I mean, 146 renewable projects on the book in Alberta alone, that's more than double all of the other provinces combined. So we didn't have to move our conference just because it was a clean energy summit. And uh, we host it in in Calgary, and we get uh, proponents from all over uh, North America promoting their renewable energy concepts and projects and so forth. And we developed what we call the National um, Electricians, First Nation Electricians Program, which is an apprenticeship program that's going to work in line with the with the renewable projects, which we know is going to require a lot of electricians, electrical engineers, linemen, and so forth. So we want to we want to hit the ground running when that renewable industry gets off the ground and starts uh, starts uh, becoming a, a a big factor within the society. And so th- that's what we did. We host our in February our first conference, which is a clean energy summit. We were uh, in our first conference last year, where we we're privileged to have. Um, uh, Pierre Polyev join us and talk about the things that uh, he wants to be able to do and support in uh, Western Canada and with the First Nations and Indigenous inclusion in the society it was important to him. And he talked about his uh, his program for uh, sharing in the wealth of uh, natural resources. And we promoted to him the five conditions that we laid out in the hearings for the uh, UNDRIP legislation, as well as the FPIC legislation, the free prior to informed consent, which includes a a clause to include uh, within that legislation, something concrete like making sure that we become equity owners in all projects relating to natural resource industry. And we should, we should be. 
There are First Nations across this country that are suing the federal government, wanting to get um, uh, <clears throat> benefits from the past 150 years that this country has, uh, has gotten from natural resource development and in the future getting a, a portion of the royalties. We don't think that's a good idea. We think what's a good idea is for us to be able to own part of everything that's going on. Right. Because once we have skin in the game, then we not only are on these boards and can determine their direction and future, but we can make sure that our people are employed. We can make sure that the environment is protected and we can make sure you know that this the, the industry itself is maintained in such a matter that uh, uh, goes along aligned with uh, reducing the effects right. of climate change. Hence the hence the the coalition model. You don't want to go to war with government with industry. Uh, you want to work with them towards common goals, where it was sort of a win win right. type type of uh, situation, which unfortunately is not. Uh, is is not uh, prevalent enough, uh, unfortunately, at the moment. So I certainly I, I applaud you for that. Uh, do you know if Mr. Polyev is is going to come back this February? I think so. Great. I think he'll um, he'll come out. We're meeting with him uh, um, when we're in Ottawa next month. Dale, based on what you've seen and heard from Mr. Polyev, do you have confidence that uh, if he formed the next government? Uh, that that the, the situation would change in terms of getting some of these projects uh, going and, and and developing resources and forming the types of partnerships that you've been talking about. Yeah, I believe, and I've talked to him several times, and I believe he's committed to to making sure that Indigenous inclusion is our top priority in uh, developing this economy. And you know, I think the Canadians, the Canadian people, will be behind it. Because they have seen, you know how how much influence uh, our First Nation people have over project developments, especially now, uh, mm -hmm. since we're being involved a lot more and get getting extra consideration for this. Mm -hmm. And we should we should have been involved in the last 150 years. And if we'd have been involved the way the 13 corporations in Alaska have been involved since 1972, you know the environment and the economy and just the general state of our society would be a lot better. Mm -hmm. We could have many and, more success stories like Fort Mackay, for example. That's right. Uh, in fact, I have, right. I have a friend uh, who's a land developer, uh, Larry Andrews, and um, he's, he's partnered with, his company is partnered with Fort Mackay. Now they're building residential developments, uh, you know, off-reserve. There's a big development that they're doing in St. Albert, a $700 million development. And of course, a huge portion of the profits from that are going to go right back into the Fort Mackay community. And uh, these, these, these success stories are very repeatable, aren't they? Oh, definitely. I mean, all I got to look is that Squamish First Nation and the amount of real estate development they're proposing uh, that it, they have done in the past and now proposing in the future is just immense. Mm -hmm. And it's good for both. Uh, it's good for the community. It's good for the city of Vancouver. It's good for the province. It's good for the country. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I didn't ask you about, uh, but I'm interested to, to know your thoughts. Dale, what, what is your uh, view of, uh, of UNDRIP? Uh, is that a is that a help or a hindrance to what what you and and the NCC are trying to do? Well, we've been involved, as I said earlier, but with the you know legislative process, um, good or bad or worthwhile, I'm, I'm not sure. 
uh, we've been involved in the process for the tanker ban, for example, and right. none of the recommendations, none of the um, things that we 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 indicated ever got, you know, to the actual um, legislation itself. But we did participate as much as we can, both in the industry section of the legislation for UNDRIP and the First Nation Indigenous section of the UNDRIP legislation and hearing process. And we we developed uh, five conditions that we wanted to see UNDRIP enforce. And I think a lot of people have got to realize and, you know, the legislation that was passed at the UN wasn't a one-size-fits-all legislation. It was developed um, in a manner, a generalization on purpose, mm -hmm. because they knew that if it was going to be incorporated by the countries of the world, that each country would have to amend it to suit their current situation. Right. And with us, we wanted to be sure that the ambiguity was 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 taken out of the legislation and there was more certainty in how projects can move forward with the legislation. And the, the most uh, important factor of the UNDRIP legislation is FPIC in our mind, the free prior and informed consent. We gotta be able to define what consultation means. Mm -hmm. We gotta be able to define who is impacted. And we gotta be able to do that in a process that 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 provides us with a you know, a, a, an ability to be able to get that done. You know, it can't be one size fits all. You know, consultation on oil and gas initiatives for Fort Mackay, it's going to be different from consultations for uh, somebody in uh, in Ontario, mm -hmm. for example, on right. oil and gas. Right. Because they're not, they're, they're not uh, privy and not, they don't have the information, ex expertise to do that. Right. So you got to determine what proper consultation is across the board, specifically from project to project. You have to be able to finalize who has impacted the communities and not expand it the way they expanded TMX from 60 communities to 129 communities. Right. People that uh, have the pipe going right through the reserve are exhausted by the idea that somebody 300 kilometers away is going to have a right to say how they how that project operates within it's their own understandable. territory. understandable, yeah. So there has to be something to do that to provide certainty for industry and investment in this country. Mm. And the the idea of uh, being able to own part of it has to be incorporated too in the legislation so that we can get away from arguing for royalties on natural resources and and get what we should have been getting in the in the in in, in natural resource projects, and that is free and clear interest in right. projects. We don't need free and clear interest 51 percent of the of the company we need you know something small like two three four five ten percent whatever whatever right. whatever ability the organization and the government can afford and that that ability or that that consideration has to be paid for by the federal government because right. right. the federal government has reaped benefits from natural resources for the last 150 years they own 95 percent or 90 percent of the land in this country, you yeah. know, they can afford it. Wow. And uh, who, you know, who better to, uh, to to give ownership to major projects free and clear than the stewards of the land and the people are, that are gonna be there forever. Right. You know, we're not gonna leave. We're not yeah. gonna, we're not gonna say, oh, this project didn't work out. It's gonna harm the environment while I'm getting up and moving to the United States. No, we, we, we are always there. Right. You know, 
companies come and go, people come and go, but uh, First Nations are always there. Right. So it's 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 a vital importance to us. We think right now the way Untrip is 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 uh, written, it's gonna it's gonna hurt more than it's gonna enhance our ability to be able to get out of poverty and our ability mm. to be included in major projects mm. because it can be used as a weapon against mm. project development, and that's not good for any country. That's a, a very edifying insight. Thank you for that, Dale. Uh, this has just been a great hour. Thank you so much. Uh, for sharing this this time with us, uh, I want to mention the the website. Is it it's ncc www.coalitionofchiefs.ca. Okay, great. So people want to find out more about the events that you're putting on and and really uh, go into more detail and some of the things you've been talking about. Uh, the, they can go and visit that website. I know I've been there. It's very user friendly. It's a lot of uh, great information there. Many of the articles that you published. Uh, and it really gives a, a, a broader understanding of uh, really uh, something that's going on in the country. I, I don't think many Canadians are uh, are aware of. I think it's fair to say, I think it's being suppressed by the mass media, this whole story of the work that uh, that you folks are doing at the NCC. So this is a part of the show where we wind up with our reading list. Um, I've got a book I'm going to mention. I know you've got some great ones uh, that perhaps you can finish us off with. Uh, the one that I'm going to refer to is called Weaving Two Worlds. This is Economic Reconciliation Between Indigenous Peoples and the Resource Sector. This is by Christy Smith and Michael McPhee. And this book talks about uh, a lot of the things that Dale has been explaining about bringing together uh, First Nations communities, uh, bringing, giving them the seat, a seat at the table that they richly deserve uh, so that uh, we're actually not in a situation where the federal government or, or resource oil and gas companies are reaping all the benefits of these resources. Uh, and so that the First Nations people, as stewards of the land, as, as Dale has described, they have a seat at the table. And also so that uh, what's being reaped, the harvest that is being reaped from these resources is going back to those communities where it's sorely needed because all Canadians have an interest in, uh, in, in reducing poverty. And it's a simple fact that, uh, you know, if the, the most impoverished uh, demographic in our country are First Nations communities. That's a terrible, awful thing to say, but it needs to be said. It needs to be recognized, and something has to be done about it. And uh, I'm so grateful for people like Dale Swampy who are out there every day trying to change this and, and really change our country for the better. So, Dale, over to you. Uh, uh, would you want to share a book or two with our audience that might enhance their understanding of of what you're doing and what you've been talking about today? Yeah, I was going to share some insight into some of the techn technological uh, um, books that have been coming out regarding um, AI and so forth and been intrigued by it in the last couple of months or so. But what I began to realize, uh, especially in the last week, was uh, what's been happening on the you know, national front for uh, Canadians and their views of what's going on with First Nations. And it was Malcolm Cadwell in his book, The Outliers, and also his book, the uh, What the Dog Saw, where he had a compilation of um, articles. One of the um, articles was talks about the, the idea at that time of um, a woman becoming president of the United States. 
and how that might impact the actual rights of women in the country in North America. And the fact that if it if it did happen, in his opinion, it would have uh, made things worse for women. Interesting. And you can you you look at the liberal government and and their um, process kind of mirrors to what what was spoken in that context, and that is that once you get a liberal government who's willing to do what it can for all the wrongs that have been created by you know, society and the government and racism and so forth to the Indian people. It's one thing to be, to, to, to be symp sympathetic to the cause. It's another to, you know, flourish it with funds and free money and managing poverty, giving out, doling out contributions to, to first nations in the form of checks without in a real sustainable model to right. get us out of poverty. And I'm beginning to see that Canadians are getting frustrated by this, you know, and it, it, it becomes more prevalent even just today when my article came out and one of the comments people made is, Oh, just another group wanting to get more money. Right. But we're not, we're not a group that wants handouts. We are a group that wants to be able to get right. out of poverty and to employ our people the 10, the 20, 30, 40-year-old people who never had a full-time job in their lives, who feel the government and people are have, um, have, have just um, forgotten about them. Right. We got to work on this. And it doesn't require money. All it requires is a commitment from Canadian people, from industry and government to, to work on strategies to do this. Right. We don't need the checks. We don't need the big checks. We need the the commitment from the Canadian people to get us out of poverty. Mm -hmm. We've got to stop um, not wanting to learn about Indigenous people. We've got to stop, you know, pushing it away and driving mm -hmm. around our reserves all the time. we got to be able to go in there and, and meet people and talk about, you know, how can I give a helping hand? Canadians are the best people in the world. I bet everybody has a, as a um, associate or a relative who's adopted children from third world countries or who, who has, uh, is part of a program to help uh, homelessness and so forth. You know, all you got to do is look in your backyard and, and go onto the reserve and find out, you know, how can we embrace those people, our people, and, and bring them into our society and give them what, uh, what they should have had in the past mm -hmm. and try to repair what's been created, which is a society where where it's very, very, very difficult for us to move from a social welfare system, uh, a society of handouts to a employed uh, lifestyle. We've got to be committed to that. And I think we've got to stop this before it gets out of hand, before it gets to a point where Canadians are going to be frustrated with us because we're all thinking we're always looking for handouts and non no more commitment towards helping us. Yeah. You know, and saying saying to us the free ride's over. Well, right. it's not a free ride. It's it's a terrible, terrible, terrible ride. Mm -hmm. We got violence. We got domestic abuse. We got drug and alcohol abuse. We got murdered missing women. We have racism. We have teenage suicide. You know, yeah. There's no free ride. It's a terrible, terrible ride. Yes. Yes. And, uh, we we've got to understand this. And the thing is, the federal government, through all of its you know, good intentions is is ruining our ability to bring Canadians on side mm -hmm. to help us to get to 
to solve this problem. Yeah, that might be the greatest disservice that successive governments have done, and that is to to draw a, a division, to treat First Nations people as the other, as opposed yeah. to our brothers, right? That, that's, that's really what you're talking about. We can all win together. We can all win together, but it takes caring and it takes... Uh, it takes action. That's what. You, that's really what the NCC is all about. Well, Canadian Canadians seen it already with the COVID relief right. program, right? Yeah. How yeah. hard is it? How hard was it to to get those people back to work? Yeah. Once you once you get free money and uh, yeah. you don't have to work, all of a sudden you don't get it. You're trying to find yeah. out another way to get it free. That's a great insight. You know? Yeah, that's brilliant. No, I, I hadn't thought of Welcome. that, Dale. Welcome to our world. You know? <laughs> well, let's try to create a better world <laughs> together. How about that? Well, thank you so you much, Dale. It's been our pleasure talking with you. Uh, you're just a brilliant mind. And uh, I'm sure that uh, all any, anybody who's watched this or listened to this is going to come away with uh, a different understanding of uh, not just of what's going on in our economy and energy, but also really the, the basic relationships uh, between between First Nations peoples and 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 their brothers, the rest of Canadians, brothers and sisters, the rest of Canada. Uh, so right. thank you so much for sharing this time. It's been our our great pleasure to have you as our special guest today on Grey Matter. Thanks for having me. <laughs>